Sunstrom Recruitment are the leaders in health and safety recruitment. If you're considering a career change or need to discuss your organisation's hiring, reach out to the team today. We were awarded Recruitment Agency of the Year in Health and Safety in 2023 and are a proud sponsor of Health and Safety Conversations. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honouring highly requested new colours for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. Here's your host... Tom Bourne. Hi, and welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. I'm your host, Tom Bourne, and with me today is the awesome Andrea Painter. Well, Andrea, how are you? Good, thanks, Tom. Really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you and looking forward to having a chat. Oh, look, we, we appreciate you being here. It, it, it's, it's, it's good to get good quality people on with a, with a solid background of experience and knowledge to come in and share with our listeners. So thank you very much for coming on. No problem at all. You've had a, 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 a long career in safety, but did your professional career start there or was there something before that? Tom, my journey into workplace health and safety evolved. It wasn't planned. I'm lucky that I can draw on my previous experience and skills and apply them to workplace health and safety because the practice is so broad. I initially worked in laboratories in the New Zealand dairy industry in microbiology and chemical labs, and I qualified in food technology. It was actually while working in the laboratories that I had my first experience of putting together a quality management system and gaining compliance and certification for the for the lab. After a number of years, I left laboratory work and I actually joined the police, the New Zealand police, as a constable. I was working frontline, general duties, and I was stationed in a provincial area where the main in- industry was farming. A lot of the work was around youth crime and gang-related matters, so it was pretty colourful. I I quickly learnt how to assess the situation and adapt my communication style to the audience and also the importance of being genuinely empathetic when dealing with victims of crime. I also developed investigation skills and interview skills during that time, of course. And like many others, I have a lot of policing stories and there were some some very challenging situations. After a number of years, I decided to leave policing and study law which I did and following my admission in New Zealand, my admission to the bar, excuse me, I moved to Queensland where I practiced in personal injury law with a firm based in Noosa. So it's a a lovely part of the country to, to move to. We were acting on behalf of claimants and plaintiffs. Most of the matters that I dealt with were work 
workplace injuries and there were some motor vehicle accidents but it was prime really it was just workplace injuries the clients who came to the firm had already been through the statutory claim process and their level of permanent impairment had been medically determined so these claims sorry clients wanted to take proceedings at common law proceedings on the basis that their employers were negligently responsible for for the injury so really what i was seeing was failed health and safety some of the matters arose from employers not training their staff so they the people hadn't been through inductions the equipment wasn't appropriate to the work they were doing they were instructed to cut corners or disregard safety requirements because of worksite or production demands. So it was often two or three years after the actual injury that I came to meet these, these claimants <clears throat> or clients. By that time, the injury had had a severe impact on their, their, their lives, not only physically, but also mentally, because they hadn't been able to work, they had lost touch of co-workers, they weren't able to play in sports teams that they used to be active in. There were family breakdowns, financial challenges, they may have lost the family home, that sort of thing. So so really in, in safety we talk about the ripple effect. This was the extent of the, the ripple effect. These people had been through significant trauma. I found that achieving successful outcomes for these clients was bittersweet because monetary compensation could never replace everything that they, they had lost. Handling a number of these claim files, I think I was handling about at least 200 at any one time. Um, I found it quite especially draining and after a few years I decided to leave the firm and take a break. I wasn't sure if I wanted to continue in, in private practice. So while on a, on a break, because I'm not very good at doing nothing, I, I qualified as a factual investigator using my policing skills and my legal background. I then worked as a subcontractor to the leading insurers in Queensland, without naming names, um, mm -hmm. for workplace injuries and also motor vehicle accidents. So really I had, in effect, switched sides where I had been working on behalf of claimants before. I was actually now receiving instruction from the very lawyers I used to sit opposite, mm. <laughs> opposite to. It was interesting work though because I got to see a lot of different work sites and and uh, conduct the investigations there. During that time I also qualified as a workplace health and safety officer so I compl uh, completed that training and I subcontracted to a firm in Brisbane who was consulting in that area on a part-time basis. Then life happened as it does and I found myself as a sole parent. So I wasn't able to continue the consulting work or the investigation work. I studied a grad dip in OHS extramurally through Massey University in New Zealand. And once I had completed that, I moved into workplace health and safety roles where the, the work hours were conducive to childcare drop off and pick up times it was tough but it was i got through it it was achievable with the support of an employer at the time i was able to continue with some tertiary education and i actually completed another grad dip i was actually in business studies majoring in hr during my time working for them so that, so that that was great i enjoy challenging myself i've worked in several workplace health and safety management roles in various organisations in the private and public sectors, including local and federal government organisations. Yeah. My industry experience includes supply chain, warehousing, logistics, road maintenance, construction, manufacturing and, and retail, so it's, it's quite diverse. 
I was actually the National Workplace Health and Safety Manager. I was in, in that role before and during the, the COVID pandemic. And I found managing the various jurisdictional responses to the pandemic and also the day-to-day -day, um, health and safety work that I was dealing with and my team was dealing with, I found it very stressful. I decided to return to consulting at that time because my son has got a bit older and I established organisational risk consulting and this is the business's first year of trading. So I have a website, feel free to check it out. The business is going well and I enjoy being able to support businesses using my legal experience, so with WHS legal compliance issues, risk management, and I enjoy being able to draw on my previous knowledge from, from having worked in, in those areas. There's still things that I don't know and I'm still learning. I'm always trying to improve on what I've done before. I think it's really important to, to challenge yourself and to read broadly. I try to take part in webinars in, in areas such as leadership and, and management and psychology and law and investigation because there's so many learnings from those fields that can actually be used in, in health and safety. And there's so much relevant information out there. Yeah. Good. All right. Just a couple of things that you, you brought up there. Just curious about whereabouts whereabouts in New Zealand were you based as a constable? I was based in Hara, which is in South Taranaki. Taranaki's on the, the west coast of the North Island. There's a beautiful mountain there. And I was based in Hara, which is the largest town in that area. We had 26 constables and myself, and we had a huge area to cover. Yeah, yeah. Look, I don't know, any, I've got to be honest and say, I don't know very much about New Zealand, except my lovely wife's from Auckland. I've been to Auckland and I've been to a few places in the North Island, but all a bit of a blur, but lovely country. Now, looking at the roles that you've had and taken, okay, I'm assuming there's a there's a strong characteristic of, of, of seeking natural justice or justice, social justice in you. Yes, yes, I think so. I, I think we need to be empathetic to to people, mm. and regardless of, of whatever role you're in, and communicate with them and, and be transparent in our in our uh, dealings mm. in health and safety. I, I know that's really important. Transparency to build a safety culture in a business. Yeah. Look, one question I. I I ask people who've done similar sort of work a bit because I tend to find it's usually the same answer, but I get curious. I've done some, at one stage I was doing quite a bit of, let's say, compliance and enforcement roles in various cat categories. Mm -hmm. And so I like to ask the question of people who were in, have been in these roles, and that means police, for example, in some cases security, but also any sort of other roles where you have an, an enforcement ca capability or part of your job, what made it attractive to you? What did what was the driving purpose? I wanted to help people. I wanted a change from the laboratory work that I'd been mm. doing for years, which was quite repetitive. Yep. I had friends who had joined the police and they were mm. saying to me, come on, you know, come in come give this a go every day is different well they're quite right every day is different <laughs> oh dear can i can i just say that was exactly the answer i thought it'd be i've never met someone who's joined <laughs> the police or corrections or anything like that who hasn't said i want to help i don't want to, who hasn't said that they've wanted to help people or they wanted to improve the world or they wanted to make the world a better place mm. The unfortunate fact I find for a lot of those same people is they, they go in to change the world and they 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 end up going leaving the those organisations saying the world changed me unfortunately and yeah. it does happen it does uh, and I don't yeah. I don't mean to 
most lovely people involved in law enforcement. I think you do a marvellous job, but I, I think there are a lot of us that leave those sort of roles a, a, a bit a bit less naive and a bit perhaps mm. more scarred <laughs> rather than, yeah, anyhow, we'll move past that. <laughs> Look, I know, I know what you mean, Tom. I don't regret having my time being in the police at all, but it was definitely the right time for me to leave when mm. I did. Mm. <clears throat> I learnt a lot about people and mm interacting with people during that time so i have i've no regrets but it was also the right time for me to leave when i when i left yeah look the other thing i found about it when you talk about knowing people but you also walk away from those roles understanding or, or believing in yourself a lot more because you've been put in situations you didn't think you might be able to handle and that and then you come out and you go well I managed that and I managed this person and I was able to do these things that most people wouldn't necessarily be able to do. So yeah, it, it's, it, it is a, it is an interesting type of work, but yeah, congratulations for doing that. And for anyone who actually takes those roles on and yeah, you know, I, I, I give them my heartfelt thanks. All right. You've dealt with a lot of workers who've been injured in Australia as a, as a lawyer and then doing the other side. First of all, as a lawyer, what's your honest opinion of the workers' compensation schemes we have in Australia? Do they deliver justice or not? Look, coming from New Zealand, where we have ACC in place, which is a government-run system, to then be here in Australia and working under a different approach, uh, I'm really not sure that there is a, a perfect system out there each has their their pluses and their their minuses as far as how can it be improved i'm sure that that question has been asked multiple times and i'm not sure it can be at least there is a system in place yeah to to assist yeah look i i I agree i've i've battled my head against you know trying to come up with solutions that might help but the best i can explain to people is the system ain't perfect, but at least we have a system. And it's mm. the alternative at the moment is we take the system or we have nothing. And I'm mm. fairly certain that most workers who get injured, or they mightn't think it's perfect, appreciate the fact that there is some sort of coverage to help them recover and get back to work in the best situations, but at least to help them through those, those times where they may have been injured at work. So I agree. The other thing I'd like to say is there used to be a, an awful lot of nonsense that used to be spun around workers' compensation. That there were you know, majority of claims were bogus and people were defrauding the system. You've you've seen it from both sides of the fence. Is that actually true? Look, there are some out there. And it was interesting doing the factual investigation work on workplace injuries because I could, or I did uncover quite a few of those. Mm-hmm. But when I was practicing as a lawyer, actually, we would always interview clients first and you could pick up inconsistencies and in their their stories so Mm. we would interview them before we would actually take them on as a client Mm. yes yes there are some dodgy ones out there um but there are also quite a lot of very genuine claimants so i know that there was a lot of rhetoric around you know oh they're they're all fake and you know ambulance chasing you know lawyers type Mm. thing but there are yeah genuine genuine people out there I there's a few of the matters that I dealt with the those stories I've I've shared before to when I've actually been in workplace health and safety one of them was where a a person actually started on their first day of work and they didn't go through any induction there was no induction no training they were heavy vehicle driver and they were told to go and put a manitou which is like a little forklift thing onto the back of a truck you know go you know can you go off and do that 
So this person, he had been a long haul truck driver and he, he wanted to do the right thing because he had taken this job so he could be closer to his family. So he goes off and he goes to put this Manitou onto the back of the truck. While doing so, while he's got the Manitou, so what they, what they do is they actually put the mast up and put the tines into some attachments onto the back of the truck and then you actually pull the the Manitou up and you're able to drive it onto the back. So the Manitou was up in the air and he was moving it onto the back and the the slots on to, on the back of the truck actually came off. Mm-hmm. The whole Manitou flipped over because he was inside. He broke his back and this was his first day of work and he was one of the claimants that I dealt with. I didn't actually meet him. I think it was about three years later. By that time, he had gone through quite a bit of surgery. He was able to walk, but with a cane. Um, he would never be able to walk on his, you know, unassisted, at least, but at least he could do that. He had been through a relationship breakdown. He wasn't able to see his kids. He had lost touch with a lot of people. He wasn't able to play rugby before, which is something he did enjoy. So there was, yeah, there's a few few of those matters that still stick with me. And, and I talk to people about, say, hey, this is real. This is, this is a real event that happened. It's really important that we have measures in place so we, you don't have something similar in your workplace. Yeah, yeah. And it's 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 quite often the, uh, the things that you know, we selectively hear. Like I, even when you started that the story there, I heard that the first day, and I can honestly say, despite despite that, despite the fact that I've been through, you know, I've been on workers' comp, and despite the fact that I've seen an awful lot of things, the first thing I heard was first day. I went, oh, here we go. This is <laughs> this is going to be a. Uh, a bogus story but no it's not um it's it's terrible how we we can pick up on those things look i i also think that that the fact that we had that's we've had in the past that's nonsense about workers comp and everyone you know being making bogus claims has sort of added to the stigma for people who get genuinely injured at work about yeah wanting to put in a valid claim for workers' comp. And uh, it's scary because they they still hear predominantly in in a lot of workplaces, you still hear from people that you'd never put a workers' compensation claim in because if you do that, you'll never get another job. And I just go, how scary is that? We're in 2023 and you've still got this huge stigma that employers are just going to wipe you for something that you know you you may have had zero control over. Um, that's that's right. I think that's especially so because HR you know can request a copy of a an applicant's work cover or you know workers' compensation history. They're they're not meant to use that against the person, but. Who's to say? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it it it's just it's just a, it's just a little sad that yeah that still happens. Okay, mm. let's let's talk. Okay, as well, congratulations also about running your own business. To be honest, I've I've anyone who starts up their own business, I have a lot of respect for because it is sometimes fraught with danger. Statistics tell us that. Having run my own business twice, once successfully, but also once that failed spectacularly, I I, I do have a lot of respect for anyone who, who who goes out and says, right, I'm going to make this business my own. There are a lot of positives for that, but it's also sometimes an awful lot of work. So congratulations there. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So you've worked as a consultant. You've, you've also worked as employee for organisations mm-hmm. in the safety field. Which which do you prefer? I'm guessing it's consultancy you're doing that right now. It is. It is. I like the the flexibility. Mm. I also enjoy meeting new clients and learning about their business operations and seeing how I can actually support and assist them. Yes, there are challenges and setting up my own business, it's it is daunting. 
there's been a lot of work go go into it behind the scenes mm-hmm. and but I, I'm enjoying it the flexibility now means I can attend training and conferences like the AIHS National Health and Safety Conference recently I can actually get to those whereas before it was a bit more challenging to do that mm-hmm. as an employee role I also quite enjoy working in the evenings so it means that I can adjust my my hours of work. I have some flexibility there where it hasn't been possible before as an employee in a role. Having said that, in a WHS employee role, you do have stability and so I'm not putting that down at all. I know for myself, it was great being in those roles when, when my son was younger. Now I can actually do what I prefer, which is the consulting side. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that. All right, as a consultant, have you ever had to uh, deliver some tough news to your clients? I have, yes. Look, no one likes receiving bad Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST bad news so I really try to be empathetic and put myself in the client's place and also be diplomatic when I'm presenting to them it's good to commend them on being proactive on the fact that they've actually sought assistance in the first place I apply a similar approach to that when auditing so if I've if I can identify, you know, the good things that about the business and the, the positive things that they're doing. So I, I lead with that. And then I talk about the areas that could be improved and make recommendations on how I can support them to to make those improvements in their in the organization. I found that the approach works quite well. Yeah, good, good. All right. It's interesting. <clears throat> Lovely LinkedIn gives me access to a broad range of people with greater knowledge than me. And one of them posted an article about a research project that was done in a particular state in America. And it escapes me. That's one of my age moments that I have. But it was conducted over a period of several decades. And it looked at businesses who put in place robust health and safety prevention schemes and, and systems in place to prevent injury and to or to at least meet legal requirements and those who basically ignored that and took the chance. And, and the finding was overwhelmingly that the businesses who basically took the risk with their people's health and safety, well, safety, we'll just stay, stay with they were the businesses that actually lasted longer or, you know, endured longer than those that actually were highly compliant with the law and valued safety more. Now, the only reason I bring that up is, do you think that the penalties that we put in place for breaching the safety legislation in Australia is in fact... I won't even say an effective deterrent, I'll say a deterrent for business owners who are considering whether it's actually worthwhile complying with the law or not. I'm I'm not sure it is. I think 
in businesses there's still a lack of awareness about what the law is and some of the penalties i think there's businesses out there who yes they're they're ignoring the legal requirements but it's often because they don't know what they are mm-hmm. they're unaware of it i think as there's more prosecutions of businesses especially where those prosecutions are made public um, mm-hmm. by the media that that may change but as far as the penalties go, I think there's still a perception that it doesn't apply to me. Mm, yeah. That's just my opinion. Others might disagree. <laughs> I was, yeah, no, I, I agree. <clears throat> That's why we ask. We ask for your opinion because, you know, your opinion is valuable. It's the same as everyone else's, as in, you know, have a valuable opinion. I was speaking to a gentleman recently and he said, and this is an interesting thing. He said, in Australia, we have our priorities and focus is all wrong. And I was like, well, this is going to be an interesting statement that follows up. And sure <laughs> enough, he, he followed up with this. He said, someone who dies in a workplace incident. And oh, we'll just use the, the example of those two, two gentlemen who died in North Queensland in a mining accident recently. A week after that happens, no one talks about them. No one ever, it's it's not considered, it's business as usual. And he said, but, you know, several years after and after we, we blow up a cultural artefact, people are still bringing up in the media. And he said, there has to be a change of focus here because we, mm-hmm. we're obviously not valuing human life very, you know, highly. If if we can just consign people who die to I don't know yesterday's newspaper, yeah. it, do you think that's the case? Unfortunately, I think you might be right there because unless it's a matter such as you know some, something big's happened, say Dreamworld incident, mm-hmm. let's hope we don't have any more of those, yeah. where there's multiple fatalities and. It is deemed to be the the public interest for the media to to follow that sort of incident, unless it's something like that. I I'm not seeing a lot come through the mainstream media at all on on fatalities or you know, significant incidents. Yeah, which is a shame. Yeah, it's, it needs to be promoted to improve the awareness. I guess the mainstream media are, are a good. Well, they'd say they're a good pulse of public opinion, and if if they're not publicising it, they're saying that it's it the public doesn't really have a significant interest, which is which is quite sad. I, I think one mm. of one of the things I, I thought about recently was we 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 have these wonderful memorials for those who've served overseas and not returned, and that, but we don't have we don't have a solid memorial with workers' names who have gone to work, who've mm. never returned. We have Workers' Memorial Day and everyone celebrates, but we we don't remember those who never came home. We don't remember them. And it, it really is sad for me that that's the case. It's true. All right, time to get back on topic. All right, <laughs> Queensland. Queensland, lovely yeah. Queensland. We do have this lovely harmony. So I'll do the inverted commas, harmonised legislation across (laughs) Australia. I don't know if it really is harmonised anymore, but that's all right. We'll move past that. And some states, for good reasons, go out on their own and do things because they want to make the safety conditions of the workplace the safest in Australia in their state. So congratulations for that. But it'd be nice if we did a national system. But anyhow, Queensland, we have these codes of practice, which unlike other states, they're legally enforceable. Speaking as a lawyer and also a health and safety professional, does that the fact that they are legally enforceable create a bigger challenge for businesses who want to operate in Queensland than those who want to operate in other states? Look, I'm not sure it does. I think it actually may provide Queensland businesses with a clearer direction of what is required to reach the standard under the Act. Regardless of the the jurisdiction, the PCBO, so the persons in charge of the business or undertakings, undertaking must ensure so far as reasonably practicable the health and safety of workers and others. 
So that, that's in place everywhere. The codes of practice actually provide information to help businesses achieve the legal standard required under the WHS Act. In Queensland, yes, they have made it compulsory for duty holders to comply with the approved code or to manage hazards or risks using another method. So it could be a technical standard or an industry standard, as long as that other method provides an equal or higher level of health and safety than is required by the code. In in other jurisdictions, for example, New South Wales, compliance with uh, code of practice is not mandatory, and it is recognised there that there might be a better way of achieving the the standard required. Mm -hmm. I think the challenge for businesses in New South Wales, for example, is that the courts may use the code of practice as evidence of what is known about the hazard and use that to determine what is reasonably practicable in the circumstances. So businesses in those other jurisdictions would still need to achieve compliance with the code or, or put in controls that were at that level or higher in those situations. I think in Queensland, by the fact that it has been made mandatory, it gives businesses a very clear direction. This is what needs to be in place or you find an industry standard or technical standard that gives a higher level of a higher standard. Good, good. No, that's excellent. Speaking of reasonably practical, yep. uh, largely misunderstood by a lot of business owners well, and, and other people as well. What is reasonably practical? Well, reasonably practical is basically what can be done, should be done in the circumstances. Unless, of course, it's unreasonable to to put in a control measure to manage a risk. So it, it's actually set out in Section 18 of, uh, of the WHS Act, and the Act includes a list of matters that should be considered, and these are things like the likelihood of that, the hazard or risk occurring. So, so really, it's businesses need to put in whatever control measures they can to manage risks and and ensure the health and safety of their workers. Mm. I, li- I, li- I like the bit where it says what is known about the risk or what reasonably ought to be known about the risk. I, I think that mm. when you when you take that back to codes of practice, that actually gives the businesses, you know, a bit of guidance here that the. the well, this is out there in public domain. You reasonably ought to know about it because it's there. It's easily available. If you type into Google, what do I need to control a hazard? It, it's if there's reasonable amount of information out there, you should be abreast of that because, you know, that's that's meeting your duties. That's right. I agree. Okay. There's some proposed changes coming into the lovely Queensland Act. What, what are they? What? Because I, I used to be abreast of Queensland Act quite comprehensively, but as I'm further and further away, it seems to be harder for me to keep abreast of the changes. What's 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 potentially going to be changing? So there's been a review conducted on the Work Health and Safety Act here in Queensland. The review sought to clarify and enhance the existing frameworks and ensure the Act's overall effectiveness. The final review report was actually released last year in December. A copy can be attained from the WorkSafe Queensland website just under the on their news page. The Queensland government has accepted all 31 recommendations that have been made in the review. And it's anticipated that there will be a bill introduced later this year to implement the recommendations. The main recommendations are around elevating the role of the health and safety representatives, so your HSRs in the workplace, clarifying the rights of health and safety representatives and streamlining dispute resolution processes. There are a few others as well. 
I think subject to the wording of the proposed bill later this year, but I don't think the amendments are too onerous on businesses. Others might disagree. I have, I've had a quick read through it all, and I, I noted some of the amendments include the fact that the PCBUs will be required to proactively encourage and support the establishment of work groups and the election of health and safety reps and also to ensure that workers right across the business are aware of the role and the functions of a health and safety representative. Health and safety representatives will be included in more safety reporting matters in the, in the workplace, so more engaged than what they are now. The time for the health and safety reps to complete their training will be shortened from three months to 28 days. And where we have refresher training required every three years at the moment, that is to be changed to an annual basis. Okay. There are a, a number of the recommendations around clarifying and streamlining dispute resolution process, but there's a, a, a few, just three other key ones I'll just mention here that I, I thought was interesting. One of them is to actually elevate the hierarchy of controls from the WHS regulations and put it into the Act. Mm. So it'd be interesting to see if there's any changes made there to the wording. There's also to be an introduction of an obligation for a PCBU to notify the regulator of an incident which did not result in a serious injury or illness, but it had the capacity to do so. And finally, a recommendation to examine the, the scope and application of the industrial manslaughter provisions and to determine if it actually warrants amendment. So subject to the wording of the amendment bill, which we won't know till later on, there's, there are some little tweaks uh, going on there and it could be quite interesting oh yeah yeah that's a, that's 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 great that's a, that's opened my eyes significantly the things that i, I can that jump out at me is yeah at the, the refresher training i can understand i think that's but the, the thing is we interesting for me to, to work out is is the refresher training mandatory because if it is that's a that's a big step that's a big step we're taking it from as per requested to mandatory if that happens that's that's significant but also if they're revising industrial manslaughter i'll be very very curious to see what they come up with because to lead on to my next question the way that industrial manslaughter is is currently worded do you actually believe that any pcbus or offices for very large organizations will be successfully prosecuted for industrial manslaughter or will it just be the what's we've seen so far that it's small to medium businesses where the PCBU has significant control over or significant influence over day-to-day -day operations of the business that will be subject to it? I think it's going to be the latter. I think there there could be a successful prosecution of, of corporate offices in a large matter, such you know, a, a dream world, and as long as it's in the public interest to do so. But you have to bear in mind that these prosecutions cost a lot of money mm. and they take time. I think the actual manslaughter provisions in the Act aimed more towards those PCBUs who have management or control of the day-to-day -day activities of the business. So I'm not sure that we're going to see too many of the large organisations prosecuted. Yeah, yeah. I, I might be wrong. No, I, I, think, I think you're dead on the money. And other people with a legal background I've spoken to sort of reflect your point of view there. So, yeah, to me, it... it it's good legislation insofar as it reflects public opinion with penalties, but it misses the mark for mm. corporate responsibility. But that's mm. just my opinion. And I will say, if I could be very negative about it, I could say it's there as a knee-jerk reaction from politicians to say they're doing something 
knowing full well there will be very little outcome from this legislation other than a headline if they ever get successful prosecution, which after two weeks people will completely forget about. But that's just me being a little pessimistic there, perhaps. <laughs> All right, you've done a lot of investigating of incidents. Mm-hmm. Any, any tips for people who are being involved or are starting off investigating incidents, what they should do, what they should look for? Look, immediately after an incident, what I've asked people to do is whoever's at the scene, ask them to take photos. Mm. Take You can gather so much information later on from a photograph. So photograph the whole area. Try not to photograph the poor injured party receiving care from the paramedics. I've had a few of those. But take photos of the whole scene. Take notes of witnesses, whoever was there at the time who may have seen something. The the weather, what was you know the weather like, the angle of the sun and that sort of thing. So if the people at the scene are able to jot down that sort of information later on when you come actually to do the investigation, you've already got these these great tips in place. So as an investigator or a safety manager going out to an incident scene, so after the event, try and well first of all try and visit the scene as soon as you can speak and obtain statements or or notes from any witnesses and the injured party as soon as you can. Don't worry if the stories that they give you or or their version of events don't actually align because everyone perceives things slightly different. Um, And and that's okay because they could be standard somewhere else or the angle that they they viewed the situation. So, So gather as much information as you can. Often what I've found in safety roles is there's been some pressure from management about, you know, what's the root cause, give me the root cause, you know, Mm -hmm. they're wanting to know that straight away. Don't rush to conclusions. You really, you want to make sure that you examine all of the fact-based, not the opinion-based, the fact-based evidence to come up with your findings. There might be multiple contributing factors that are all important. So, so don't don't worry if you have a, a large number of those. Those are good because you can actually put in measures to rectify those issues as well for the business. So take your time as much as you can. I'm not saying delay the investigation, but just try not to jump to conclusions. Those would be my my tips. Good, good. And in your experience, biggest or most common contributing factor in safety incidents, is there any? I I think it would probably have to be around induction and training and the way that is understood by the the worker, the participant. Sometimes I know that training can be might be given in a, a PowerPoint and it's look it's it's a great means for communicating, but not everyone learns as as you would know, Tom, by reading script. Mm. So then it needs to be interactive and that needs to be taken into account. So if you are inducting someone, an operator, a forklift operator, for example, their strengths may not be reading pages of, of policy. It, you need to present it in a way that they can understand and comprehend it. I think yeah. that's really important. So tailoring that training. Actually, one of the things I saw at the AIHS National Health and Safety Conference on the third day, they were talking about future focus and the use of technology. And one of the presenters spoke about using virtual reality as a training tool for things like, you know, very practical training on a site, you know, confined space and, and that sort of thing, because it is so immersive. And it gave the the trainee an experience while still being in a safe environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm all for anything that does that. I find the requirements for training, if people look at like Section 19, it's there generally. But I I really do encourage business owners, if if they're in doubt what training is required, et cetera, et cetera, 
head on down to the regulations, look up regulation 39, and it's quite explicit what the training should cover for each type of role. And I, I just, you know, I, I I only know that because I like reading legislation, but I, I really do encourage business owners to actually go this step further than just knowing a little bit about the Act and then going, well, this is all vague. You know, and, and and think about it because it is a vital step. It is a vital step, and it is required by law. So, I don't know. Just do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Final question. Final question. Because we're running out of time. In your opinion, are workplaces becoming safer to work in in Australia? Well, I certainly hope so. <laughs> in the profession, in the workplace health and safety profession, there's some you know, fantastic practitioners. And I think the information available to businesses, there's a lot more of it these days. And I think it's probably written and communicated in a way that's easier to understand. So is it becoming safer? I'm not sure on the stats, but I, I certainly hope it is. Yeah. yeah. We live in hope. We live in hope. All right. Andrea, thanks so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure, but we are running out of time. So I'm going to say goodbye, but I really do look forward to speaking to you again. And uh, thank you once again. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Health and Safety Conversations with Tom Bourne. Until next time, stay safe and enjoy the rest of your week. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.